and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over a decade of experience. And this is Trisha, and I'm thinking that it's the time of year where a nice glass of Marat sounds good. Marat. I feel like I know what that is, but I don't know what that is. It's a drink made of honey and mulberry juice. Oh, that does sound good, actually. I would drink that. I don't really know what mulberry juice is. I don't either, but I imagine it tastes good. I know that there's like a mulberry bush out there. Right, that you sing songs about going Mm -hmm. around. Yeah. So, okay, well, yeah, like Courtney did just say, welcome to Addicted to Murder, and we are finishing up Clifford Olson today. Hooray! Horrible, horrible person, so I'm glad that uh, that's happening. Um, Before we do that, though, um, I'm going to ask a question. Go for it. I have a really easy one for you. The last one was kind of a stumper. It was. This is coming out right around Thanksgiving, so what is your favorite dish on the Thanksgiving table? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I don't know if this is strange or not, but like I love rolls and bread. No, I think there's a lot of people out there. Chris's favorite thing is the rolls. (laughs) Yeah, totally. If I could probably just put like rolls and some mashed potatoes on my plate, I probably would. Yeah. Well, and it seems like the Thanksgiving rolls are like the super soft ones, and they're just like so decadent, delicious. Exactly, and then you just melt some butter in them, Mm -hmm. and it's the best. My favorite is actually a combination of green bean casserole and yams with the marshmallows, and I like to mix them together with gravy. That sounds weird. (laughs) It's so good. (laughs) But you know what? Like, the older I get and the more Thanksgivings I might partake in that aren't my Mm -hmm. family's, the more I see that a lot of people don't like yams or green bean casserole, but I freaking love them. Uh-huh. I like both of them, but I don't like the yams with marshmallows because I don't like marshmallows. Oh, I think it just makes it. Mm. Mulder loves a sweet potato. I make him sweet potatoes all the time. Um, you just put in the microwave and heat them up and then he'll just mow down on them. Mm-hmm. Well, they're kind of like candy for dogs. Yeah. And I think that they have good vitamins and stuff. Yeah, they're good for them. Yeah. So that's good. So it's nice you can have a treat that we both enjoy. Yes, definitely. Okay. Well, Courtney, before we get into part three of this piece of shit, do you want to just go over a little bit? Yeah. So just a little recap of parts one and two of Clifford Olson. Um, so he has a pretty normal family growing up, but he's still kind of an asshole from a young age, likes to beat people up, gets into criminal activity early, is in and out of jail, more in than out from the age of 17 until he's in his 40s. Um, And he gets married, has a child, and right around that same time starts his killing spree. Um, And so... He had killed several children at the end of our last episode, and the police were kind of considering him, but also kind of writing him off. Right. And he wasn't just killing them. He was raping and torturing them. Yes. Yeah. So, okay. Well, so at this point in time, the police are looking more at Clifford, but they still don't necessarily think he did the murders. But, you know, maybe he knows who did because, you know, he's been an informant for them for a long time. He did have that sexual assault charge against him. So the police were going to try to use that somehow to try to get information out of him. So the police brought him down for questioning. 
Clifford smelled the real possibility about getting some cash for his information, um, but Clifford didn't want to give up too much information. He didn't want to get caught, so he didn't say he knew who committed the murders, but he insinuated he mo- he may know where the bodies were, the ones that hadn't been found yet because they were you know missing persons now considered homicide victims. Courtney, I'm not exactly sure what he was trying to accomplish, but obviously if he knew where the bodies were, either he did the crime or was in some way, you know, an accomplice in the crimes. What do you think? The author throughout the book insinuates that Clifford wants to get caught because he wants to brag about what he's done. There might be something to that idea of like wanting to brag about his actions. He certainly did like attention, especially from the police for some reason. Um, And, you know, on a more basic level, though, Cliff is always out to do whatever will benefit him the most in the moment. Um, So if the police are going to question him anyway, he might as well try and make some money off it, too. Seems almost just purely selfish. Yeah, he is a trip. Yes. All around, but... Well, at this time, the police didn't have the authority to offer any sort of reward for information, so they had to let Clifford go. However, they were now watching him closely, and they tried to figure out a way to get money so they could pay him for the information, as they were, you know, kind of getting desperate at this point. So the the police basically just followed him around all day long, but then when Clifford went home for the night, they just stopped. So that left ample opportunity for Clifford to continue, you know, at night. It was three days after the death of the exchange student that Clifford found himself retracing his steps to relive some old memories when he happened upon 15-year-old Terry Lynn Carson. He just offered her a ride, and she accepted. He then plied her with his laced beverage and drove out to a remote area. He raped her as she was drugged, but then waited until she was more aware before he did the rest. This time, he didn't stab or bludgeon Terry. He slowly strangled her. Three days later, 17-year-old Louise Chartrand was his next victim. She was walking along the road when Clifford offered her a ride to her final destination. She turned down the alcohol as she was actually headed to work, so she was definitely more alert than the others when she saw that they were not going to where she thought they were going. She got scared enough, in fact, that she tried to exit the vehicle while it was moving. At this point, Clifford pulled out his hammer and hit her on the head with it. So she was unconscious from this blow, and for all of his later, you know, administrations... He buried her when done, then headed back on the road to find another victim. Courtney, let's hypothesize what would happen if Clifford had not been stopped. He was losing the satisfaction he was getting from the killing. I know you can't read his mind, nor would you want to, but if he had continued on the spree unchecked, what do you think he would have done when murdering and raping children just wasn't enough for him anymore? So it is impossible, of course, to know for sure. Uh, But if we assume that his need for violence would just continue to increase over time, like most serial killers, um, I've got a few guesses. One option would be that Cliff would move into more sort of risky methods of abducting victims, like maybe not drugging them, um, using more violent coercion, or even, for example, like upping the risk factor by maybe trying to kidnap kids from their homes or in like more populated places. Um, or some other idea, you know, he may have increased the length of time that he kept a victim, um, increasing the nature and changing up the, the way he tortured them, maybe keeping them alive longer to inflict more pain. Fortunately, these things did not happen, um, but I'm sure there are other ideas that he had that I would never even think of. 
Yeah, I mean, it just, it seemed like throughout, you know, what we read that it was, he was murdering him quicker and quicker, um, and he just wasn't seeming to get the satisfaction, and it's like, okay, what's, what would be next? But luckily, yeah, like you said, it didn't happen. So this is kind of messed up, but the police were watching him, and they saw him commit burglaries, but they didn't do anything about it. They just didn't think it was worth their time questioning him since he was still an asset as an informant. And I'm curious, you know, if other inform- informants are given the same leeway to do whatever they want with no consequences. That's just like a thought. <laughs> there were some lower level police officers that did think Clifford was worth investigating, however. And it got to the point that even when no one was supposed to be watching him, these officers did so anyway. One day, all of the extra surveillance and money spent on man hours and fuels paid off. Clifford was driving all over Vancouver Island in August when he came upon a couple of young hitchhiking women. The police were watching him, or the police that were watching him were immediately alert. They knew that if this was the killer, then they were watching him begin his abduction of his next victims. The cops were not sure what to do. They were arguing back and forth on if they should act. Then the girls got into Clifford's vehicles, and the cops made a quick judgment call. They turned on the sirens and pulled him over. When they got the girls out of the truck, they decided at the last second to charge Clifford with the burglaries that they had seen him commit. This decision prevented them from catching him in the act, but they could not in good conscience, you know, let something happen to the two teens if it really, you know, he really was the killer. Clifford was taken to jail and was denied bail because of all of his previous escapes. The cops assigned to the serial killer investigation still were not under the impression that Clifford was their guy. However, they did think that he had information on the real perpetrator. So they went to their interrogation thinking he would spill his guts, just like he always did. But this time, Clifford did not act in the same self-deprecating manner he um, had always been like in the past. He was cold and clear with his demands this time. He offered to show the police where the missing bodies were for $10,000 a body. The money would be put into a trust for his wife and child. The lead investigator still thought he was full of shit. This was the second time that he said he could help find the bodies. I, I don't understand personally how they are still so blind to the possibility that he may be serious. I guess I wouldn't make a very good cop. I'm maybe too naive. I don't know. I would have believed him or at least followed up somehow. What do you think, Courtney? You know, I can't say for sure th- what I would have believed. You know, Cliff was charming and manipulative, and I could see how the police might think of him as just this, like, bumbling low-level criminal who was constantly being caught and then, you know, snitching on others. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if they just didn't think he was smart enough to be a serial killer and yeah. get away with it for so long. Because all serial killers we've seen are very smart. Which is not true. I know. I but it was... <laughs> and I, was I, think, making, I was making a funny. <laughs> yeah. But no, that's a good point. Like, I think there's this, that stereotype mm-hmm. that, like, to be a serial killer, you have to be, like, this highly intelligent right. being. Right. Anyways, they did have a forensic team go through his truck, and they found a box of, quote, toys. And in this box, there was drugs, weapons, and syringes. But they were all in pristine condition, didn't appear to be used. I mean, it was weird for him to have it, but no real evidence that could be used. So it appeared that Clifford had gotten rid of everything that could have been linked forensically to the murders. Everything except for one thing. Um, A notebook that was found wedged under the passenger seat. The name Judy Cosmo was written on that notebook in the teen's own handwriting. Judy was the one he tape recorded and attempted to play for her parents. So with this piece of evidence, the police were finally convinced that they had the serial killer in custody. But I guess that without more concrete evidence, um, they figured he would be 
free. You know, this one notebook was not enough to convict someone. They needed a real confession and they would need it to be proven. They would need him to lead them to the bodies. So Clifford repeated his offer, although this time he gave a bit of a discount. He offered to show the, show the police where 11 bodies were for the price of $100,000. This is a quote from the book. I want to make sure my Joan is getting the money before we go any further. Make sure this isn't some sort of trick. So I figure what we'll do is I'll give you a freebie up front. I'll give you a body and a statement. You'll have the 10000 in cash, and when we're done at the scene, you'll call your man, and he'll hand that over to my Joni. Then I'll call Joan. Make sure she's got it. And you call your man. Then we can roll on the rest. So Corporal Fred Mayle was the only person that was really able to stomach this whole situation, and he was ultimately the one negotiating the deal with Clifford. Um, Clifford insisted that they have a contract regarding all of this, you know, the payouts and everything, and here is what the contract said. Quote, this is an undertaking of an agreement between the RCMP, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and Clifford Robert Olson. The following be, will be paid by the RCMP to Mrs. Joan Olson for the following information. 10000 cash for each body of missing persons up to seven bodies. 30000 for information on four bodies which have already been recovered which relate to the above seven other missing persons. The arrangement should be undertaken and shall be binding in law as to not disclose this information in the agreement to the Canadian press. The following missing persons are covered in, in this agreement. Judy Cosma, Darren Lewis Chartran, Christine Weller, Terry Lynn Carson, Colleen Dinault, and Sandra Wolfstein, and one unidentified, unidentified female. 10000 will be paid to Mrs. Olson, up to a total of the recovery of seven bodies. Mail then let Clifford know he could not authorize these funds himself, so he'd have to, you know, get it approved by someone that had the authority. Clifford was fine with this. He was confident that his plan would work. So, Courtney, this seems like a horrible precedent to be set. Can you imagine criminals thinking they can sell their information for money as if that aren't isn't bad enough, you know, what they're doing? It is absolutely a despicable thing, um, but really... It almost is like a logical extension of the practice of criminals trading information about crimes for comfort items in jail, jail transfers, or lesser sentences. You know, Cliff himself had partaken in that system many, many times. Yeah. They said it was more transactive with him than it was combative at this point with the police. Right. Ultimately, the decision on whether to pay Clifford for his information was passed up to the Attorney General, Alan Williams. After reviewing everything, Williams saw that Clifford would probably walk with the little that they did have. They needed these bodies to secure an eventual conviction and to stop the killing. Clifford agreed not to speak to the press, as this was what you know Williams was really worried about. Exchanging taxpayers' money for information from a child-raping serial murder was not going to be good for his career. He agreed to the deal grudgingly, eventually. Joan was notified by her lawyers of what was happening. She had had a couple of vague conversations with Clifford, but it was really hitting home what type of man she was married to. Apparently, she was pretty shell-shocked. I guess he said this per the book. Quote, what can I say, honey? I did it. Everything they're saying I did. It was the booze and the pills, not me. End quote. So another despicable thing that was happening at this time was when Clifford saw all the cash in the suitcase, he made a joke to his lawyer that he could write a book about all of this and call it Kiss Daddy Goodbye. After the formalities, they dressed Clifford in a police uniform. So remember, they're trying to keep this whole thing a secret, so that's why they put him in a police uniform. And he started his tour of his murderous mayhem. 
Apparently, all through the day, Clifford was so excited to talk about what he had done, you know, and how he had done it. He was happy to show them the murder sites. He was, like, in his element. He would get out of the car at the murder sites and act out how it all happened, both sides, his side and the victim's side. Finally, all the bodies had been found and exhumed, and as promised, the money was delivered to Joan's bank account. Well, after all of this, Clifford decided to offer up some more bodies, but this time at a discount. He offered 5000 a body for 20 more murders. Well, this offer was denied by the attorney general um, because he refused to give Clifford any more money. What do you think about this, Courtney? I'm sort of like, well, shit, you already shelled out this much. The damage is done. Precedent's made. Let's pay for the other 20 bodies. Their families deserve closure. You know, on the one hand, I understand wanting to potentially give families answers and, you know, solve other potential murders. But on the other hand, I also understand not wanting to reward this terrible man anymore for his bad behavior. You know, I can only imagine how much convincing and ethical considerations Williams took to make the decision to give the first 100000 let alone trying to justify eventually to the public giving him another 100000 This time around, Clifford did not do so awesome in jail while he was awaiting trial. He was now a child-raping murderer. He ended up having to be put into solitary for 22 hours a day for his own protection. Clifford would spend his other two hours a day calling the press and complaining. He even told them about the payouts, thinking that if the press knew, then the cops would pay him for the other bodies because, you know, now everyone knew about it. For some reason, the press did not print the story about Clifford being paid for bodies, however. And I guess apparently in the situation, the press was loyal to Williams, who would promise them favors if they did not print. Or, um, you know, if they didn't want a favor, they were threatened with like a lawsuit being, well, not lawsuit, but being found in contempt of court if they printed the story. Quote, any news outlet that poisoned the jury pool would invariably have to face charges, fines, and worse. And that wasn't even taking into account the fact that it would result in a mistrial and a notorious murderer walking free to kill again. So that's kind of why they kept their mouth shut. Clifford did plead guilty to 11 counts of first-degree murder. Justice Harry McKay had this to say, quote, No punishment that any civilized country could impose would be adequate for the severity of your crimes. You should never be granted parole for the remainder of your days. It would be foolhardy to let you at large. Duh. Um, he was sent to Kingston Penitentiary to serve his sentence. After his sentencing, the press did go ham. The news of the deal he had made now was plastered all over the place because there's no jury tool to, pool to taint anymore. June was Joan sorry, was not going to give the money back, um, and they wanted her to. The attorney general was raked over the coals for his decision. In fact, it was the end of his career. The police did try to take the money back from Joan, but it had already been transferred to an overseas account. Joan was harassed bitterly and eventually had to go into hiding. She did divorce Clifford and then, you know, changed her name. Courtney, I know that Joan was, you know, a victim in a way, but I don't think I personally could have hung on to this blood money. I think my conscience would run too deep and I would feel that the money should be given to the victim's families. What do you think you would have done? I mean, no judgment. There's a part of me that can see why Joan kept the money. You know, she was a, as far as we know, meek woman who had been gaslighted by a very manipulative man and suddenly found herself a single mother with no real employment history or skills. Um, And so what was she going to do? You know, in the whirlwind of it all, I can understand why a person might say like, well, here's one thing, money, that I don't have to worry about right now as I try to figure out my new life. 
That being said, I am not and have never been in her situation. Um, So I'd like to think that I would want nothing to do with the money or anything else that would tie me to a murderer. Yeah, I'm just thinking about like, not her, but you. Like, Mm -hmm. I just know personally, I just, I would feel, I couldn't do it. My pain is nothing compared to their pain. Yeah, I I think I would be in that same boat with you. Yeah. Um, During this time of chaos, Clifford did not stop trying to be a fucking douche. He was upset by what was happening, um, how they were trying to get the money back, how he was not getting the accolades he felt he deserved for his, quote, great victory. So he started to call and write to the victim's families that, you know, were involved in all of this. He would tell them on the phone or in letters how much he enjoyed killing their loved ones. He told them of the torture he inflicted, how they begged him to stop and all that. He had no qualms about torturing the living members of the victim's families. He was fighting back in his sick and twisted way. One guard overheard him say, quote, if I gave a damn about these families, I wouldn't have killed their kids. His torture worked. The families gave up on their legal proceedings and stopped trying to get justice. They could not handle what Olson was doing to them. Eventually, the families did get some money, but not from Olson. He was technically bankrupt. The money went to Joan. Um, But the courts of British Columbia paid out $100,000. He continued to write to whoever would listen, offering up bodies for cash or parole, but no one was responding to him anymore. I think he pretty much burnt all of his bridges. I guess he did help... Um, American authorities most likely out of boredom with some missing person cases that occurred during his heyday. He was careful, though, not to get himself in too deep because he knew the death penalty was still a thing in the United States. But after this point, only thing that got him any news attention was when it was discovered that somehow he was receiving um, pension payments from the government. So that was stopped upon discovery. In September 2011, Clifford found that he had terminal cancer. He died within the month on September 30th. Okay, so we've gone over all of this. Um, He acknowledged that he had committed 11 murders. However, could have been a lot more because if really there had been 20 more bodies to be found, there might have been even 20 more bodies and 20 more bodies. Um, He went back and forth on how many people he claimed to kill. What do you want to uh, talk about a little bit? You know, something about Clifford that it just strikes me as different from, you know, most of the other killers that we've talked about, and that to me it seems that he represents more of the the nature side of arguments about what makes someone a criminal or a psychopath or not. You know, he really does just seem like he was born with the brain of a psychopath, and then his choices really solidified this status as he got older. You know, um, he didn't have a trauma history, not in the same way that, you know, others had. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't grow up in a violent household. Like, a lot of the, the more nurturey things that we typically see just weren't present in his case. Um, and something kind of that for some reason was talked about a lot everywhere I looked at um, research about Cliff was... Um, his score on the psychopathy scale. Um, And so what that's referring to is the Hare psychopathy checklist. And so this measure was developed by Dr. Robert Hare um, back in the 1970s to identify psychopaths and rate basically the severity of their symptoms. So things like lack of empathy, manipulation, impulsivity, and criminal behaviors, among others. 
Um, and the score that you can get on this checklist um, ranges from zero to 40. So it's 20 questions and you can answer zero, one, or two for each. Um, and so while in prison, you know, Clifford was assessed by psychologists um, and was given a score on the checklist. So for reference, um, the cutoff score for meeting the criteria for being a psychopath is 30. Um, and Ted Bundy's score was 34. Um, and in a surprising twist, Gary Ridgway's score was 19, so below the threshold. Um, but Clifford received a score of 38 out of 40, which at the time was the highest score ever recorded. It is no longer, but at Do the time it was. Do you know who holds that record now, or is it, did they not say? Um, there is, um... In the book that I was reading that was written by um, Robert Hare, there was at least one person that scored a perfect 40, oh. um, but he was not a serial killer. It was so not someone that was sort of in the mainstream news. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Courtney and I kind of were fooling around with some psychopathy tests that we found online. I don't remember what they were, but you said one of them was kind of legit. Yeah. So they were both based on science, um, one actually was the psychopathy checklist oh. um, given in a you answer for yourself mm -hmm. on an online quiz format um, when traditionally scores are given based on like a forensic interview with a psychologist um, and they score you. But we did, we did do it. I was um, like 10 points higher than you. Right. I think. But I still wasn't over 30. <laughs> right, yeah. I think I was 23 and you were 13 or something. I think I was three. Oh, maybe I was... 13. 13. Yeah. yeah. So neither of us are psychopaths. No, but I Hooray. have um, more traits than Courtney does, which doesn't surprise me. Everyone varies. <laughs> and who knows if a psychologist rating us would have rated us differently. True. I mean, yeah. But you can go and find those and... Um, Actually, Courtney and I, after we record this one, I think we're going to do our next video spotlight on psychopathy. We are. Yeah. So be sure to tune into that. Um, and that sort of leads us into, oh, sorry. Did you have anything else to say about Clifford as a serial killer that we had never heard of and who has so far, I think, taken the prize as being the biggest asshole we looked at? Um, mainly just that if a grown man offers you a job and a ride and a track, you should go nuts, go home and go to therapy. Yeah, totally. Like you said last time, you know, people don't just offer people rides and jobs at the same right. time. And, uh, um, okay, well, let's talk about the social media then. Yes. So if you want to show us how much you appreciate what we're doing, you are welcome to like, comment, rate, review, subscribe, all of those things on social media. So you can shoot us an email if you want to tell us anything specific at addictedtomurderpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram at addictedtompodcast, or you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube at addictedtomurderpodcast. Thank you, Courtney. You did that very well. Um, so I'm picking our next killer, and my clue is that he is a big one. That is a very good clue, actually. 
totes my goats. Okay, <laughs> well, um, thank you for tuning in and um, stay safe, stay warm, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.